0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How do we work with people we disagree with? How do we stand up for causes while also building relationships? We're going to explore those questions as we broadcast today a full episode from This Is Her Place, a podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present in all their diversity. Podcast co-host Naomi Watkins will uh, join us at the beginning and end of the program. Uh, this episode is called Bridging the Gap. And before we have Naomi Watkins introduce this, uh, let me introduce Naomi. Naomi Watkins is an educational leader, women's advocate, and community builder. Uh, she's an expert in teacher education and literature, literature literacy rather pedagogy. And uh, she is co-author of uh, Champions of Change, 25 Women Who Made History, uh, which she authors as a part of her work for Better Days 2020. Uh, So we bring in now uh, Naomi Watkins. Well, here at the beginning, uh, we are pleased to welcome back to the program uh, co-host for the podcast, Naomi Watkins. Naomi, great as always to talk to you.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm just going to read the brief paragraph here. We call this episode Bridging the Gap. So these two women that Naomi, I'll ask you to tell us about very briefly here, uh, could have felt like outsiders in their own communities. And at times they did. But they were also gifted with an almost uncanny ability to create bridges with people who thought and felt differently than they did. So we're talking about Alison Comish Thorne and Karen Kwan. Uh, So very briefly, uh, maybe introduce us uh, to these two women.
1: So Allison Kilmish Thorne was a professor emerita at Utah State um, in economics, a civic leader, and an activist in her community in Cache Valley. And then Representative Karen Kwan is currently in the Utah House of Representatives. Her district covers Taylorsville, Murray, Mill Creek, a bit of West Valley, and she's also an associate professor at Salt Lake Community College.
0: Anything stand out to you as you think about this episode uh, that people should especially listen for?
1: Well, you know, if you're from Cache County, learning about someone from your own neighborhood is really, I think, cool. I had never heard of Allison Comish Thorne until we did this episode, and she really stands out to me as someone who built that community.
0: All right, well, let's jump in. Well, this is episode four from This Is Her Place podcast. Uh, we're calling this Bridging the Gap, and uh, we'll talk after this episode. Um, this is a very timely uh, episode. So let's hear this. This is episode four from This Is Her Place podcast. Karen Kwan grew up thinking of herself as one of the guys. She had a brother just two years older than she was, and they had the same friends, did everything together. That is until her junior high school, whose mascot was the Admiral, assigned boys and girls to different activities
2: there was a, a service project that was only for boys in the junior high school and they were the admirals Now the girls could be waves but they did different things but i wanted to be an admiral because my brother was an admiral so i was so mad <laughs> when they said no girls are waves and boys are admirals.
0: the other reason karen kwan wanted to be an admiral was that admirals were allowed to go anywhere in the school during lunch to make sure other kids didn't leave the lunch area waves were only allowed to do activities in the auditorium and couldn't really go anywhere.
2: So I put in an application to be an admiral, and I didn't know that I was really doing anything, but I heard later that the application went up to the school board and was approved because they were not able to separate activities by sex. And this is about the time that women were fighting for ERA. This was in the late 70s, early 80s.
0: Karen Kwan did that service project and she became an admiral. And without even meaning to, she caused a permanent change in her Los Angeles school.
2: By the next year, they combined the two programs that so was co-ed. I didn't realize that, you know, what a great thing that was. I didn't realize I was a trailblazer. I was just so mad that somebody told me I couldn't do what my brother is doing.
0: That was also the beginning of Karen Kwan's path to becoming a legislator and a community builder focused on issues of equity and equality. Today on the podcast, we're talking about two women who've worked for change and equality in communities they care deeply about, especially when it comes to women's rights. Allison Comish Thorne, professor emerita at Utah State University and a civic leader and community activist, and Karen Kwan, a current member of the Utah House of Representatives from District 34, which covers Taylorsville, Murray, Mill Creek, and a bit of West Valley, also a community advocate and an associate professor of psychology at Salt Lake Community College. Both women could have felt like outsiders in their own communities, and sometimes they did, but both also dedicated themselves to building bridges with determined persistence, and often in the face of steep odds. Ready, Tom? I'm ready.
3: Okay. Welcome to This Is Her Place, the new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. I'm Naomi Watkins.
0: And I'm Tom Williams. We'll be introducing you to poets and politicians, artists and activists, healers and homemakers, compelling women, women who inspire us, with the unique ways each of them has truly made Utah her place.
3: We really appreciate you joining us and ask that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So today we're going to get into politics, you know, a topic that can be really sensitive, especially these days, Tom.
0: Uh, Yes, and isn't politics one of those two things you're not supposed to talk about in Polite Company, politics and religion?
3: Well, (laughs) I guess we won't be very polite today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, Seriously, a lot of people say they feel like it's gotten harder to talk about sensitive issues. Research shows that the country is more and more polarized and parties are more ideological. Fractured news environment makes it harder to even agree on facts.
3: Yeah, there's even research showing that people would be more upset now than in the past if their son or daughter married someone from the other political party.
0: And yet for people working on causes they care about, it's really hard to get anything done if you can't work together with people on the other side.
3: It's really an important question. How do we work with people we disagree with? Do we work with people we disagree with? How do we stand up for causes while also building relationships? And this is something that both of the women that we're going to talk about today were really gifted in both had an almost uncanny ability to get other people on board, to create bridges with people who thought and felt differently than they did.
0: So let's start with Alison Comish Thorne. She lived in Logan, Utah and worked at Utah State University. She was also active in all sorts of community issues, particularly women's issues, including the Equal Rights Amendment.
3: She also cared deeply about the other people in her community, including the students she worked with. And that in a way explains how she came to be at the front of an anti-war march. It was 1970. The United States had just invaded Cambodia as part of the long-running Vietnam War, and residents of Logan, Utah, like those in other cities and towns across America, were holding a local peace march. The Logan mayor opposed anti-war protests and sentiments, but he consented to a peaceful march with police protection. But as the march began, the police were noticeably absent, and Allison Thorne, who was marching with Utah State University students and community members, heard rumors of violence. It had been just one week since five students at Kent State University had been killed by the Ohio National Guard during a peace rally, and she was worried about the march crossing intersections where the marchers would be more vulnerable to cars running them down. So she decided to move from her place in the back of the march, and put herself at the very front. Here are three of Allison Thorne's five children, Sandra Thorne Brown, then Kip Thorne, and then Avril Thorne describing the scene.
4: And mother was afraid that people might be violent towards them, throw rocks at the kids or whatever. So she led the march. And there was our mother strolling down the street with all these kids behind her because she says, if I'm there, they're not going to be able to.
5: And she was, at the time, was chairman of the school board and commanded a lot of respect and had some amount of political clout. So she almost spontaneously, at the last minute, moved from far back in the march up to the front and led it as they went down past the area where others might have broken the march up. She had been, until then, very popular as the school board president. She'd been re-elected twice to the presidency of the school board, and I guess the board then chose who was president. But at the next election, she lost the election by a rather large margin, largely, we think, because of leading this anti-war march.
6: Yeah, there were petitions against her as a result of that march. Well, the front page of the Herald-Journal had her leading the march. It was a photo.
3: (laughs) The photo, which you can see on our website, thisisherplace.org, shows Alison Thorne leading 250 marchers while clutching her purse in her right hand and holding in her other hand the corner of a large protest banner that reads, Love America, End the War, Now. Allison Thorne was used to ruffling feathers in her Cache Valley community. She had moved to Logan in 1939 with her husband, Wynn Thorne, an academic who took a faculty position at Utah State University. Allison Thorne also had a Ph.D. in hand. She was something of a prodigy and was the first woman to receive a Ph.D. from the Economics Department of Iowa State College, which she did by the age of 23. But because of nepotism laws of the time, husbands and wives couldn't work for the same employer so she wasn't allowed to be hired as a full-time faculty member, which was her training. Alison Thorne was certainly qualified. She was trained in what was called consumption economics, meaning the study of goods and services used in households. She traveled around the state giving a talk to women's clubs entitled Leave the Dishes in the Sink, which would also later become the title of her memoir. Having a perfectly clean house was strongly emphasized to women in American culture in the 1950s and 60s.
0: She's got a man she's promised to love. Honor and...
2: Keep house for the right way. Does
0: that mean I never have to with the dishes?
2: Never. Belle does my dishes.
3: But Alison Thorne argued for efficient homemaking that would allow women to spend time with their children and pursue other interests. Allison Thorne's practical tips enabled her to be a homemaker, mother, scholar, and community activist. Here she is explaining one of those tips. When
7: the house would be awful dirty and one of the kids helped me to clean it up in a hurry, I would say... We have to hurry, there's a hurricane coming, we have to hurry before it gets here. So everybody would rush around and in no time we'd have the place all cleaned up.
6: And we'd all be screaming, the hurricane is coming, the hurricane is coming.
3: Even though Allison Thorne couldn't be hired as a full-time faculty member, she was invited to teach a class and became active in the Faculty Women's League, where she was known as Mrs. Winthorne until the late 1970s when she began to be addressed as Mrs. Allison Thorne, but never as doctor in spite of her PhD. She worked on research proposals with faculty and was given the title of assistant professor, but without a salary because of the anti-nepotism policies. Finally, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended those policies, she was offered a position as a lecturer, not a full professor, in the Department of Family and Child Development. In order to avoid being fired at age 70, as many women lecturers were, she successfully requested a promotion from lecturer to professor emerita, finally getting the title she had been qualified for all along. She could have complained about not getting her due, but instead, she got to work. Here's Avril Thorne.
6: She would go to bat for other people, but she never complained about her own. I think she realized that she was relatively better off than almost everybody else. And she just wanted to level the playing field for other people. So she just soldiered on.
3: Allison Thorne's soldiering on took the form of pouring herself into community causes that mattered to her. During her service on the Logan School Board, Governor Calvin Rampton appointed her to the powerful five-person state building board, which oversaw construction at all state institutions, including prisons, mental hospitals, and universities. She served for 12 years and was the only woman on both boards. Education was always an important cause to Allison Thorne. She wrote a grant to bring the Head Start program to Cache Valley, and she was also a member of the Cache Migrant Council, where she helped pave the way for the education of migrant farm children by local public school districts. Here's her son, Kip Thorne.
5: Her ability to reach even across party lines and bring Republicans on board with her on community issues was quite remarkable considering how liberal she was. When they forgot forgotten which administration it was, wanted to get rid of the community action program, which included in Cache Valley Head Start and the migrant workers education and support program. She managed to get essentially all of the powerful Republicans as well as the Democrats in the state and in Congress and the Senate to stand up for them. And how she did that, I don't know, but she really was amazingly effective.
3: Allison Thorne also battled to get the local vocational school to offer women more courses than secretarial classes, and she worked on community projects with her good friend, Ione Benyon. Here's Ross Peterson, emeritus professor of history at Utah State University.
1: And so uh, Ione got a job teaching down Logan High, and she was telling Allison one day about one of her students was not allowed to come to school anymore because she was pregnant. And they set out, and they did a thing where they... uh, actually created in a house near Logan High a school for the unwed mothers so they could finish their education.
3: A lot of Alison Thorne's work focused on improving the status of women. She viewed the women's movement as a way to change the structure of society and to end poverty. She served on the Utah Governor's Committee on the Status of Women and helped to organize the USU Status of Women Committee. Here's Jane McCullough, Associate Professor in the Department of Home Economics and Consumer
1: Education.
7: There were very few women on the faculty, and mostly we were in things like English, home economics, of course, which is where I was. We kind of got to know each other because there just weren't many of us. It wasn't until after the Status of Women Committee formed, which was in the early 70s, it then dawned on the administration they should have at least a woman on all committees. There were not many of us to serve. So we would see each other, oh, you're the woman on this committee. (laughs) And so it was a good time to form. We had a general meeting on campus. Any woman who wanted could come, and we talked about the things that could make it a better place for faculty women, or women in general, students classified. And we came up with a list of concerns. We elected a steering committee. And then it dawned on us our next step had to be to talk to the administration. And we said, okay, who's going to make this big leap? Allison said, oh, I will. I'll stop on my way home in Old Main and talk to Bernice Brumley, who was President Taggart's secretary, and make an appointment. And she did. And so we went to this meeting with Glenn Taggart, poor man walked into the room, the conference room in Old Main, and it was filled with nothing but women. He sort of blanched, and we told him what we were there for, of course we, you know, prepared. And he immediately got up, said, excuse me, he went out and found Garth Hanson, who was at his desk, and brought him into the room so that he would not be the only man in attendance. But then. You know, he, President Taggart looked around the room and met all of us, and Allison was the only one there who could say, Glenn. To the rest of us, he was President Taggart. And because she knew him through, you know, Wynn's work as vice president, she knew him on a different basis. And her presence gave us credibility that would have been very hard to come by had she not been there.
3: The Status of Women Committee was able to get a women's center, women's salaries equalized, women on various committees, improved health services for all students, and a children's house where female students could take their kids while they attended classes. Allison Thorne's credibility also helped establish a women's studies program at USU, and she taught the first course in the program. Her daughter, Barry, was an assistant professor in the sociology department at Michigan State at the time. Here's Averill Thorne.
6: Barry and mom were real true colleagues, and Barry had developed a women's studies program early on at Michigan State University. And when mom started developing such a program at Utah State, she made a lot of use of Barry's knowledge and materials, and they swapped information a lot.
0: Coming up uh, after a break... We are hearing, uh, of course, an episode of This Is Her Place podcast. We'll continue the story of Alice uh, Alison Comish Thorne and uh, the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. You're listening to... Axis, Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we're listening to a complete episode from the podcast, This Is Her Place. You can find them at thisisherplace.org. And uh, right now, we're reviewing the, uh, the life story, interesting life story of Allison Comish Thorne.
3: Like many women involved in the women's rights movement, Allison Thorne was an ardent supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA had been written by Alice Paul, a suffragist and leader of the National Women's Party, and it was introduced to Congress in 1923. This was three years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the amendment that made it illegal to deny voting rights because of a person's sex. Incidentally, the 100th anniversary of this amendment occurs this August 26th. Alice Paul viewed the ERA as the next step in securing women's rights and equality, but it wasn't until almost 50 years later in 1972 that Congress approved the amendment and put a seven-year time limit on the ratification process. The path to ratification became a bitter battle during the 1970s and 1980s, and Allison Thorne was one of the pro-ERA leaders in Utah. Here's Avril Thorne.
6: Mom was an avid feminist really all of her life, even though feminism wasn't always what she called it or what people like that called it, she was more like an egalitarian person who thought everybody should get their fair shake is the way she would call it. And I think that that valuing of a fair shake and an equal playing field for everyone was all that she ever wanted and that underlay a lot of her community activism. So uh, the story about her ERA efforts that's the most interesting to us, I think, involves Sonia Johnson, who was a neighbor of ours So Sonia eventually married and moved to Virginia and got involved with a group called Mormons for ERA, which began as a sort of guerrilla underground group of mostly women who were Mormons, but also supported the Equal Rights Amendment. In 1979, Sonia was so outspoken about her support of the Equal Rights Amendment and demanding that the Mormon Church support the ERA instead of oppose it, which was keeping the state very anti the ERA, that she became a very visible to the Mormon church and they threatened to excommunicate her. And so a petition was published in the Salt Lake Tribune around that time by Mormon women for ERA, which mom was one of about 200 uh, signatures on that petition asking that the Mormon church exonerate Sonia for her efforts and also support the ERA and laying out the reasons why the Equal Rights Amendment was going to be important for Mormon women and all women. The petition didn't help. Uh, In fact, Sonia was excommunicated and was vilified in Logan, was really viewed. She described herself as the devil as far as people in Logan were concerned. But Sonia never gave up. She was a very determined woman, just like our mom was. And she called mom at some point from Virginia and said she'd like to come to Logan uh, to plead her case and was hoping she could talk at Utah State University where mom had a lot of ties because mom was uh, then teaching there. So mom set up the venues and described Sonia as going through two days in Logan in a blitz, like a blitzkrieg, trying to plead her case and get people on her side to be pro-ERA. And at one point, the final tour that she made through Logan was a big speech in the auditorium of the business school on campus. They didn't know if anyone would even show up, but the town was very polarized. There was some support for her, but a lot of opposition to her, but the pros and the con people both showed up in force and so many people that just sit on the floor, they were coming out in the hallways, some people get disgusted and leave, other people come and sit in there, take their place. At one point, someone in the audience asked what the content of the Equal Rights Amendment stated and Sonia looked for her purse to find the card that where it was written down. But mom, of course, who was always an avid studier. Knew it by heart, so she just stood up and recited the content of the ERA.
3: That content being, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex.
6: Which I think was a real hit and very memorable for mom because she was able to help in that way.
3: The United Nations declared 1975 to be International Women's Year and urged countries to gather data on women's condition. The U.S. Congress published a list of recommendations and allocated $5 million to implement them and to elect delegates to a National Women's Conference to be held in Houston, Texas in the fall of 1977. During this time, a strong national anti-ERA movement arose and was led by the efforts of conservative Phyllis Schlafly.
1: When you make uh, the laws apply equally to men and women, you end up taking away many of the rights that women now have. ERA is a big attack on the rights of the homemaker. The Church of Jesus Christ
3: of Latter-day Saints also officially took an anti-ERA stand and mobilized women to attend many of the statewide conferences. Allison Thorne attended the Utah conference with several friends. In her memoir, Allison Thorne wrote of the experience. My general impressions were as follows. The ERA was shouted down. As a person who raised my hand for yes on ERA, I was branded by all those around me as a package of evil, rudeness to those conducting, taking over of workshops, not permitting planned programs to take place, men with walkie-talkies walking along the edge, representing the Mormon priesthood and telling their wives and other women what to do, the ultra-conservatives had control. Vicky, with her dark skin stood out in the crowd. I wondered why more black women had not come. Voting machines stood in a great hall. Women carried Phyllis Schlafly material and voted down every resolution the National Commission had put forth, even voting down action against rape. Appalling to feel the hatred. Appalling to witness unquestioning obedience to male authority. There was an interval when I walked out of the Salt Palace and over to Temple Square to the Relief Society Monument. My heart was full of sorrow. I knew in the depth of my being that my great-great-grandmother, Louisa Barnes Pratt, and my grandmother, May Hunt Larson, believed in equal rights for women. My loyalty to the church and to Relief Society was being shattered. Allison Thorne also attended the National Conference in Houston where her daughter, Sandra Thorne Brown, was living. Here's Sandra.
4: So Mother and Anne Hatch, a dear friend of hers from Logan, and so they flew down and stayed with me, and we went into the Coliseum, and it was, I mean, it was huge. It was just
7: packed
4: and, you know, wall to wall and seat to seat.
7: Madam Chairperson, I move the adoption of the following
6: resolution.
7: The Equal Rights Amendment should be ratified.
4: And Mother wrote, what a joy to be amongst 80% of women who voted for the ERA and in favor of the rights of racial and ethnic minorities. That's our mother. Yeah.
3: The ERA would fail to get 38 states to ratify it by the seven-year deadline. Utah was one of the states that did not pass the amendment. Here's April Thorne.
6: Oh, she was totally irate. She just couldn't believe it. It was like a big tidal wave of anger when the ERA failed to pass, it was we were a real watershed for mom in terms of how she viewed the Mormon church. Until then, it had been sort of in the backdrop and sometimes annoying, but many of her friends were Mormon. She always insisted that when we were in Logan, we be civil and okay. And we were, we were fine. But at that point, something broke. I'd never seen her so mad.
3: Allison Thorne and her children requested to be removed from LDS membership records soon after the ERA failed to pass and also after her daughter, Barry, was excommunicated for her book, Rethinking the Family, Some Feminist Questions. Here's Kip Thorne.
5: So our mother, who was much respected in the community, despite her liberal activism, they did let her go rather easily because that was what she wanted and uh, her wishes were respected. She immediately joined the Presbyterian Church and went on with the same kind of role in the community as she had had before.
3: Allison Thorne never wavered in her loyalty and devotion to her family and to her values. And that came through in the way she raised her children. Here's Jane McCullough again. You know, uh,
7: pretensions, status of symbols, having beautiful clothes, that didn't matter. She said, we have tried to teach our children that you love people and use things not the reverse.
3: And here's Sandra, Averill, and Kip Thorne.
4: When she would notice that we had an interest in something, like I started to really like flowers and leaves and stuff like that, then she would help me learn to identify the different plants and animals and things around. She would just, I think she supported all of us when we
6: showed an interest in something. Yeah, when I went to graduate school at Berkeley, what astonished me was that she had already read the stuff that my major professors had written about creativity. She knew that literature like the back of her hand, and I'd never read it in my life. One time I came home for a week or so in the summer, and I I saw some books out, and there were two or three books there heavily annotated in her tiny little cursive in the margins by my professors that she was reading. She never told me this, anything about it. She just, she would try to keep up with what her kids were doing. And Didn't want to be intrusive about it, but was just curious about it.
5: She took me to a lecture at the Fifth Ward Church for the MIA meeting for kids that are older than I was about the solar system. I became totally enchanted with the idea of the solar system. And so she then did a project with me of scaling the solar system down, showed me how to do the calculations to scale the solar system down to a size where the sun was about a four-foot diameter uh, circle on the corner sidewalk at our house. Then the planets were strung out along the sidewalk. And uh, Pluto, which at that time was a planet, it was out in North Logan, or maybe Smithfield, I've forgotten. But it was to see that and to see how tiny the planets were and the great spaces between them made this whole thing vivid for me and got me totally hooked on astronomy, which became a major part of my career. I really credit her with getting me started in that direction.
3: Kip would become a theoretical physicist at California Institute of Technology, earning a Nobel Prize in Physics in 2017. In fact, all of the children would achieve educational and professional achievements and accolades. Barry, a professor of sociology and women's studies at the University of California. Sandra, an urban forester and environmentalist, and actually one of the first female foresters. Averill, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And Lance, an environmental activist and an artisan builder of fine handmade furniture. Here's Averill Thorne.
6: One thing you might have noticed in her book is that if you actually count, not that I've counted, the attention she pays to each of the five kids is equal in that book. And uh, knowing mom, I'll bet you she sat down with index cards, wrote down all the things she wanted to say about each of us, and how many pages each of us were going to get.
3: She also taught her children to always speak well of others, including those with whom they disagreed. And she lived by her own advice. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But that didn't mean she kept everything inside. Jane McCullough describes a group of women friends that came to be known collectively as Friday.
7: We had a small group called Friday because we got together every Friday. They're all women employed at USU. And we started with just four of us who happened to not have plans for dinner that Friday. And so for, golly, more than 25 years, we met almost every Friday for dinner. And this was a group that helped each other with their experiences, with their contacts, you know, with their suggestions. And Allison was always there with her calm, well-reasoned, Well, have we thought about trying this? You know, when uh, Wynn died, it was very hard. But it was good that we had Friday because we were her family. Her kids were other places. And we were her family. We could cheer her up or we could listen to her missing Win, And we were her source of, she could say anything there. We had a rule. Anything said at Friday doesn't go outside Friday. And so she could let herself say things that she wouldn't say other places.
3: At the end of her career in 1988, Alison Thorne was awarded an honorary degree from Utah State University. She delivered a faculty lecture entitled Visible and Invisible Women at Land-Grant Colleges. And her son Kip gave the commencement address that year. Sharing the stage was memorable to them both. Alison Thorne never called herself a radical, but she insisted that when she died, the headline for her obituary be, Old Radical Dies. And thanks to friends in the news business, it was. A giant banner headline across the top of the front page. Her kids say she would have smiled at it. Throughout her life, even though she was at odds politically with many in her community, she fiercely committed to it, always going to events and activities and connecting with people. Here's Avril Thorne.
6: She was able to live with the tension, and she, the tension was not very visible. I think it was really important for her to work quietly behind the scenes when she saw inequities happen, and she would push buttons in a very savvy but quiet way. I think she was a very good networker. Uh, she knew tons of people, and she was able to figure out where the pressure points would be best applied and with whom, and she would just quietly enlist the help of whoever she thought would be able to get the best purchase on a particular issue. She's very savvy, extremely savvy politically.
0: That's a remarkable story. You know, Naomi, I've lived in Logan and been connected with the university for more than 25 years. I'd barely heard of Alison Thorne before we started working on this episode.
3: Which is crazy because she really did so much. I mean, her list of accomplishments goes on and on and on. And it makes me think about how much women have done in history, but they don't always get the credit or the recognition that they deserve.
0: True. And one thing that really stands out is the way she was able to bridge and connect with people. Even though she felt differently from many in her community, that in her political savvy is something she had in common with Karen Kwan, the other woman we're profiling today. Karen Kwan, in fact, is a current member of the Utah legislature, and she introduced a new bill in support of ratifying the ERA just this year.
3: So let's talk about Karen Kwan. She's a woman, Chinese-American, and a Democrat in a heavily white male Republican legislature, but she still manages to get buy-in.
0: Yes, and growing up as one of the guys, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, has helped her navigate a landscape that many still see as a boys' club. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we will have Karen Kwan's story uh, with this full episode that we're broadcasting today of the This Is Her Place podcast following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are hearing a complete episode from the podcast series, This Is Her Place. You can find them at thisisherplace.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, now we're uh, transitioning to learning about the second woman profiled in this episode, uh, Karen Kwan. For a while, Karen Kwan was the only woman on the House Transportation Committee of the Utah Legislature, for the entire 2018 legislative session, actually. One of her goals during that time was to make sure the other committee members took people into account that weren't represented especially women, children, and seniors. At the time, the committee was looking at how to get self-driving vehicles onto Utah roads.
2: I brought up the question about what happens if a mom wants to put their you know, 10-year-old in a car and say, go to grandma's. Okay, well, you know, 10-year-old, right? Probably are okay. What happens if this mom wants, or a dad, you know, wants to put a 10-month-old in a car, say, go to grandma's? What happens if that car breaks down? So at the time, that kind of questioning was sort of overlooked. And they said, well, you know, that's not for another 10 years. We're not going to worry about it now.
0: Two years later, the issue came up in the committee again. By this time, autonomous vehicles for hire were already on the roads in Arizona and Nevada. And Utah was looking at testing an autonomous minibus in St. George. So Karen Kwan tried again.
2: I ran a bill this last year, autonomous vehicles. To look at what we do if a parent would like to rent or hire a taxi or a, a car and have their child in it unaccompanied. And, and I worked with the child care licensing coordinator, I worked with technology experts, and I worked with UDOT to come up with this piece of legislation that was run in the 2020 session.
0: The bill got stuck in committee at the end of the session. But it started a conversation that's still going, and Karen Kwan plans to run it again.
2: The Transportation Committee was so interested in this idea that we're going to be studying this because it actually has far-reaching impacts, farther than just whether or not a parent would like their child to take an autonomous vehicle for hire, right? But, you know, the thing is, is that there was a group of men two years ago who didn't even want to talk about this, But for me as a mom, I knew that that is the first thing that I want. I want to be able to say, okay, you need to be picked up from school right now and I have a meeting at work. Okay, I'll send you a car and you get in it and get home. But I also, I want to make sure that she's safe.
0: Karen Kwan's strategy to get support for the bill was to find an intersection, a place of common ground.
2: The intersection there was talk talk to parents. And what I mean by that is the committee members most of them are parents, so I talk to them like a parent. What would you like to see? What things would make you feel safe?
0: This mindset makes a lot of sense when you consider Karen Kwan's background. She's trained in marriage, family, and child therapy, and worked first as a counselor at the Asian Association of Utah, and later as an academic advisor at the University of Utah for Asian and Pacific Islander American students. She also worked in the community with a variety of ethnic groups and nonprofit organizations and felt happy with her career as an advocate and community builder. So when the chair of the democratic party in Utah, Jim DeBacchus approached her to run for office, she said, no,
2: no, but he came to me three years in a row. This is really telling about women because I'm not unusual in that, right? Women actually need to be asked and invited to run where a man doesn't necessarily need to be asked.
0: Eventually, Jim DeBacchus convinced Karen Kwan to at least consider it.
2: And I asked everyone that I knew, right? My family, my work. I said, "Now I can't do this, can I? And everyone I knew said, yes, not only that you can do this and that we need you to do this.
0: At the time, Karen Kwan was the chair of the Organization of Chinese Americans, Utah, an Asian Pacific American advocacy organization.
2: I said to them, if I run, I have to step down as chairperson because I can't do both. I said, so I, you know, it would take me out of the community and I don't want to do that. And I'm not sure that I should do that. And they said, not only can you do it, but you must do it. And the reason that they said that is because I would have been the very first Chinese American to serve in the legislature. And, you know, it was really, I get... Misty when I think about this, because it was really their love and their support, you know, that got me through that first campaign that told me that we need a seat at the table. And that gave me the motivation and the support that I was able to stand on their shoulders to bring their voice to the state capitol, where it had never been before. Even though they've been here, Chinese Americans, we've been here for 150 years. You know, plus, <laughs> and we've never had a voice there. I mean, and, and that, that is why I ran. That's why it became more than me running. It's representing our communities.
0: Karen Kwan says that first campaign was full of emotional highs and lows.
2: And what's scary as a first-time candidate is that when you bring your authentic self, all of a sudden, you're very vulnerable because people aren't rejecting your campaign, they're rejecting you as a person. It was really, it was a transition for me. I did not win the first time. Uh, And that's why it was was a great learning experience. I'm actually really, I'm pleased of my path. I mean, I certainly would have liked to have won that first time and I ran to win. But every experience we gain wisdom. When I lost, it really, it gave me a dose of reality about what people were feeding me about what it meant to be a candidate. And I could kind of see at that point, what was a formula and, you
0: know, what was authentic to me. And what surprised her when she got to the legislature was finding that same authenticity in others.
2: What I learned my very first day in the legislature, my very, very first day of training was how wrong I was in terms of you know, having to watch my back and take knives out of my back all the time. People are, legislators are really nice. They're really friendly. By and large, they are there because they believe in the things that they believe in. And they want to make Utah a better place. And so I thought it would be so far out of my comfort zone. I mean, it was terrifying, I'll tell you. And that's what kept me out of politics. It was just such a big world to me and it seemed like people weren't listening to us anyways and i was wrong i
0: was wrong it might surprise some listeners to learn that someone who's all about consensus chose to run a bill in support of the era one of the more divisive issues in utah's political history but karen kwan brought her characteristic common ground approach which in this case involved a multi-year strategy to ease into the issue
2: The funny thing about Utah is that we've had ERA language in our constitution from the 1800s, right? From the very beginning. And it's actually more robust than ERA language. So last year, in 2019, I ran a resolution called Reaffirming the Value of Women. So the very first step was to reaffirm our language in our state constitution and to recommend that the U.S. Constitution would have the same language. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Back in 1895, the men and women of our state argued for and won equal political rights in our Constitution. We can honor our forefathers and our foremothers by supporting this resolution and affirming the value of women. Thank you. And that passed unanimously. I really believe Utah values women's equality from the very beginning. And I actually quite naively didn't understand the holdup for why we never ratified the ERA. If we ratified the ERA, or if the ERA is ratified in the nation, it won't change any laws in Utah. That's just the fact. It will not change any laws in Utah. So it is a grand gesture. It is a message. And that message, again, is our love and support.
0: This year, in 2020, building on the resolution from 2019, Karen Kwan ran a bill in support of ratifying the ERA. She knew it would be an uphill battle, but she didn't expect the arguments against the ERA from the 70s and 80s to resurface. Arguments involving things like abortion, women in the military, and separate bathrooms for men and women.
1: Uh, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment will make our young women subject to the draft and military combat the next time we have one of these wars that we have every 10 years.
2: Um, Those arguments have already been dismantled just throughout the years, either by a Supreme Court case or by precedent, legal precedent, or they're already happening. So things like the draft, for example, it's a non-argument because we're not going to ever have the draft in the same way that we did in the 70s. Military scholars, and, and actually military leadership will say that too, the military doesn't look that way anymore. So, I I mean, yes, the arguments didn't necessarily make sense for today's world, but the arguments are tied up in these strong emotions.
0: She also didn't anticipate where most of the opposition to her ERA bill would come from.
2: I had many of my colleagues say that personally they support ERA, but they could not vote for it. And actually this surprised me because it was a woman in their life that didn't want them to support it. And so either it was their wife, their mother, their neighbor, their, you know, I don't know. It was many different people, but it was often a woman in their life. And so that surprised me that the biggest opposition actually came from women, not men. The men actually were, when they spoke to me about it, were very supportive. I mean, not to speak for them, but the message that I heard was that they felt stuck. They didn't feel that the ERA was the right language, but that they wanted to support women's rights because it was the right thing to do.
0: And this is where Karen Kwan's penchant for finding common ground shows up again.
2: You know, I think that there's room for a conversation. I've always followed the communities or worked with the communities to make sure that I'm representing the community of Utah women who want to see ERA passed. So I think the conversations need to be between the groups of women who are opposed, not opposed to women's rights or equality, but opposed to the language and to come up with language that is consensus language.
0: In January, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the ERA, which means it now has support from enough states that it will move to the courts though Utah could still ratify it later. Karen quan and her colleagues didn't bring the bill out of committee, knowing it would be shot down on the House floor, but she still wants to see consensus language move forward in Utah as an alternative path if the ERA gets shot down or mired in the courts due to ratification occurring after the timeline decided by Congress.
2: Can that move quicker than the actual ERA? Are we tied as a community? Are we tied to the language because of the emotional attachments from the past? And that's, there's value in that, right? And there's power in those words. But I I would like to see a second path to expand the possibilities. It's just going to be a, a matter of messaging. And by messaging, I mean educating, right? So that the arguments against it have already been answered. The arguments against it don't really hold the kind of legal weight that the opposition says that it does. That it's more, it's more emotional than anything, which I, I understand. So if we can negotiate those feelings and work together, it can still move forward. So I have hope that it can still move forward.
0: Working with emotions is Karen Kwan's signature ability, and it's worked to create consensus on many bills.
2: In 2019, every single one of my bills passed unanimously. I never got a no vote in any committee. And that's because of working together, right? Working in a collaborative way rather than competitive. I always try to see my colleagues as, well, they're my colleagues and I see them with, I seek out their expertise to work with them rather than against them as much as I can. I think that that's just the best way to work in life, not just in politics. So, you know, again, I look for those intersections, that common ground. Relationships is everything. So it's not about navigating the differences between us. It's navigating those, the commonalities, seeking those commonalities, building upon each other's strengths.
0: This collaborative approach can take an emotional toll.
2: I come home exhausted. It's just, there is a lot of emotions, a lot of good emotions, but that can be exhausting too. But it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that, and it's a privilege that my education supported this work. To be trained as a counselor and to be able to use that training to engage and listen to, actively listen to the people that I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking with, I find that that's the emotional investment.
0: That kind of investment in listening has changed Karen Kwan herself too.
2: Since I've become a representative, the world opened up to me. And in a way that I never experienced or understood being a woman of color, I just sort of stayed in my lane before. And once I became a representative, I saw this, this larger world where the intersections could be made and should be made, but hadn't yet been made. And feel so I feel privileged and responsible to make those connections. Often when we think of the word equity, we think people think about this in terms of minority groups. And I, I don't necessarily think of equity only in those terms. So I'm, again, think about who's missing in this conversation, who is not in the room, and how can we know their stories and elevate those stories so that we can create policy And so when we have a legislature that is so predominantly male predominantly Caucasian, predominantly Republican, I feel like it's even more of a responsibility for me to bring in those voices, right? The voices that are not in the room. And in order to do that, I need to know those voices, know those people, understand their perspectives, know their stories.
0: At the same time, Karen Kwan's Asian-American culture is still a big part of who she is as a legislator. She sponsored bills on acupuncture and the Lunar New Year, and her Twitter feed often sprinkles Zen proverbs between the more political posts. Karen Kwan would love her daughters to get involved in the issues she cares about, but like Alison Thorne, she also respects each of their individual paths.
2: So I'm not only a representative, I also teach at Salt Lake Community College. I'm also a mother, I'm also a mentor, I'm also a wife, I'm also a sister, a daughter. I mean, we're we're all so many things. And to be mindful of where these intersect. Because I think when we are able to find those intersections within ourselves, And we're able to share those intersections with others where our paths may cross. It's those connections that strengthens us. I think it's those intersections that brings us the strength.
3: the opportunity to watch karen kwan in action and she really does typify bridge building which can't always be easy
0: i don't imagine and i think it's especially interesting to see the similarities between karen kwan and Alison thorne's approaches how they focused on amplifying the voices and needs of those who are absent from the decision-making process and how they worked with those across the political aisle to get things done
3: which if you're in the minority may be the only way to get things done And of course, the obvious connection between the two women is their involvement with the Equal Rights Amendment. Really makes me wonder what Alison Thorne would think if she were still alive today.
0: Well, she and Karen Kwan would probably be persistently and determinedly working together, don't you think?
3: Oh, most definitely. We are saddened by the news that Karen Kwan's brother, Michael Kwan, who was referenced at the beginning of our show, passed away on July 23rd. We send our sympathies and love to the Kwan family. We'd like to thank today's guests and thank you for joining us on This Is Her Place.
0: If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a minute to rate and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss out on future episodes.
3: To find out more about the amazing women mentioned on today's episode, visit our website at www.thisisherplace.org. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for a ton of insider content.
0: This is her place relies on listener support. If you'd like to play a part in the creation of future episodes, please click the donate tab at our website to contribute.
3: You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at This Is Her Place podcast and at Twitter handle, this is Her Place. Questions? Comments? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at thisisherplace at gmail.com and perhaps we'll discuss your thoughts on a future episode.
0: This Is Her Place is made possible through the generous support of Janet Dana Stowell, Gary Anderson, the Year of the Women Initiative at Utah State University, and the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. This episode was written by Allison Pond and Naomi Watkins. Our executive producer is Patrick Mason.
3: This Is Her Place is produced by Allison Pond with research assistance provided by Meg Rasmussen and editing by Dorothy Abrams. This podcast was recorded on Goshu, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute land. Our themes composed by Lindsay Wheeler. Additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions.
0: We'll be back again soon with another episode of This Is Her Place. We have now heard, I uh, hope you enjoyed that, episode four from This Is Her Place uh, podcast. By the way, you can go to thisisherplace.org to find all the episodes and much more information. And I'm joined once again here at the end of the hour by uh, co-host of the podcast, Naomi Watkins. Uh, Naomi, what, what especially stood out to you as, as we heard that again, that episode?
1: You know, they both of these women were working on passing the Equal Rights Amendment in Utah, something that still has not happened. Um, and the North Amendment is still timely. You know, Nevada and Virginia recently ratified it, and the question is, now what happens? So it's interesting to see the work of Allison Comish Thorne, you know, several decades previously, and thinking about how Karen Kwan has taken up that torch.
0: Yeah, what strikes me, Naomi, is is how timely this is. Boy, we need bridge builders more more now than ever, don't we?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think they both have similar um, strategies to that, right? Like, it's really about relationships.
0: Yeah, definitely true. Definitely true. Well, uh, next month we'll uh, air Episode 5, and uh, maybe just mention again, Naomi, you're uh, working on Season 2 of the podcast.
1: Yes, which we're launching on March 24th, starting with an episode about... Governor Oleen Walker and Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson.
0: All right. We'll look for that. March 24th, and uh, I guess the best place is what thisisherplace.org, right?
1: Or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.
0: Wherever you get your podcasts. Great. Well, Naomi, it's uh, so great talking to you always, and thanks for joining us once again. Yes,
1: Tom. Thank you.